Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions until he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its tree will be bad. Fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for, em for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Yeah. Praise be to God for reading his word. Amen. Um, we are, uh, we're in a series. I'm just going to flip this out of the way. We're in a series on Matthew, as Angelo said, um, and uh, one of the things that we're doing is moving through the whole book, so you may notice that um, 
we, we've been taking large chunks, and we don't always get to every part of it. Um, and so I'll, I'll tell you up front, uh, I, we will not be uh, hearing about the unforgivable sin this morning. And, um, and as a pre- preacher, there, there are texts where you're sort of like, you do a little duck move, you know. Um, and and that, I, I, I want to tell you that I, I'm not trying to duck it. Uh, my invitation to you is that uh, if, you wanna, if, if that struck you and you want to talk about that, please come talk to me after the service. Um, I, I'm not trying to avoid it. But, but what I would say is that um, part of the key to understanding that is actually understanding what we're going to talk about this morning um, and the context of the chapter. So, um, so the chapter as a whole helps us, and, and I, I hope you'll see that in a moment. Um, so, uh, so Matthew 12, um, what it shows us is that the, the life of Jesus is, is really difficult to understand if you don't understand his claim as Lord. Um, and yes, I say that word um, as maybe you hear it. If I said Lord, even in a whisper, you might hear it as Lord. You know, it has that effect. Um, and, and why is it so important to understand uh, the Lordship of Jesus? Uh, I'll give you an example, as you just heard. Uh, in this passage, Jesus heals many people. He heals a man with a withered hand. Uh, we're told that uh, afterward, a large crowd follows him, and he heals everyone that was ill. Uh, he heals um, a man who was blind and mute. He restores his, his speech and his sight. Uh, and, and on the surface, these appear to be things that everyone would celebrate. Uh, no matter what your cultural background is, there are no cultures that we know of that are sort of against uh, people. Maybe you have some more anthropological history than I do, but who are against healing, who are against life um, as a general principle. Uh, Jesus does all these things. Um, and yet, what we know is that his, the response to him is, is not just thanksgiving and praise. It's mixed. Um, it's, it's a mixture of thanksgiving and wonder. It's certainly there. But there's also murderous hate and anger and accusation that comes in response to, to Jesus' healings. And of course, it's not just in this chapter. Um, I'm not just cherry-picking here. If you think about the life of Jesus, um, even in the, the previous uh, chapter, chapter 9, or, or a couple chapters ago, uh, Jesus drives out a demon that had kept a man mute, uh, and the crowd was both amazed, and some said he works, he's, a, he's working uh, demonically. He, he's a work of the devil. Uh, in chapter 8, probably maybe more famously, uh, many of you will know when Jesus uh, heals uh, the, the man who is who, legion, who has many demons in him. He's so, he was so full of, of um, sort of demonic torture that the people had to chain him down just to control him. Jesus heals the man, sends the demons into a herd of pigs. The pigs rush into the water. Um, but there was the man in his right mind and clothed. And what do, the, what do the townspeople say to Jesus? Get away from us. Get, get as far away from us as possible is kind of their response. So what, why do I bring all that up? What, what's going on is that when people um, encounter Jesus, they do not encounter just sort of a moral good teacher. No one walks away from Jesus saying, he had some good thoughts, uh, you know, I, I, that's interesting. I, maybe he'll do a podcast. I'd like to listen to that. Uh, that's not the response that Jesus gets. Uh, Jesus is one who demonstrates authority over creation. Jesus demonstrates authority over creation. Uh, authority, you know, I'll kind of use these interchangeably, authority is an aspect of his lordship. Uh, it's a part of what it means that when we say Jesus is Lord. Um, and it's his lordship that drives the people he encounters to either follow him 
and give their life to him or to accuse him of being a demon. And maybe some of you are thinking about, you know, C.S. Lewis has this famous, you can either call Jesus a lunatic, uh, a liar, or a lord, right? Those are kind of your only options. Um, So so we see people either plotting to kill him or pushing through the crowd to touch the hem of his garment. And you should ask why. Why is that the only kinds of responses that we see? Um, This passage helps us to see and understand. It's about his lordship. Um, So we're going to look at what, does that lordship mean? Why does it offend? And then how does it offer us hope? Those are the, the three things. So what is it? Um, Jesus' lordship is his right to define, you see I have in your outline, to, to de- redefine, his right to redefine or define all things according to his purposes. Um, so we see that most clearly in the, in the passage that Timothy read at the beginning, which is the text you have at the top of your outline. Jesus uh, claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, now, just help us understand that. What is Sabbath, for, particularly for, for um, a first century Jew? Sabbath is a sign of Israel's special relationship with God. Um, it's a gift that God gave his people to set them apart, to practice it. Um, it is a day of rest. Uh, and at the end of, so just some background on this, right? Some of you know, but just remind ourselves, uh, at the end of six days of, of creation, uh, God sets apart Um, the last day, the seventh day, for rest in Genesis 2. Um, And then God commands his people uh, in in the Ten Commandments in Exodus. uh, He says says to the people, remember this six-in-one-day pattern. So you work six days and you rest one to honor God. Um, Listen to Exodus 31. Uh, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know I am the Lord and to sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Work or die. I mean, rest or die. Uh, Whoever does not work on it, that soul shall be, I'm sorry, whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So Sabbath was, it's a blessing for the good of his people. Um, but to break it meant death because to break it meant that you were breaking from the good that God had set out for his people. And it's important for you to get the weight of that in your mind as you think about the reaction the Pharisees had to Jesus. So then let's look at Jesus' response. So Jesus, um, you know, the, the Pharisees accuse him of breaking Sabbath um, this very, and now you see sort of the weight behind that accusation. Uh, what is Jesus, his argument, his reasoning for allowing his disciples to break the Sabbath? You see um, in verse 3 and 4, he says, uh, he answered the, the Pharisees, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Um, so, it might seem like what Jesus is saying is, hey, um, remember when those guys uh, broke the law? That gives me precedent. I can break the law too. Uh, I don't know if that sounds familiar for you. Does that happen in your household at all? Remember when you let so-and-so do this? Um, now I should be allowed to do this? Uh, it seems like Jesus is doing that. But actually, uh, if you look the whole argument, and we'll get to the other part in a minute, Jesus is laying emphasis not on the fact that the law was broken. And so now he has, I can do whatever I want. David broke the law. But actually, his, his emphasis is on the fact that it was David 
who, who, led, who led the people to do that. That it was David in particular, King David, the man who was after God's own heart, right? That it was the person. And because of how important Jesus was, David was, that that gave him the authority to, to, to do that. His emphasis is on who it was, not on the fact that the law was broken. And so now Jesus is saying, but one who is greater than David is here. I am greater than David. And that gives him permission. Now, see, if you're not convinced yet, just look at how it continues to go. He, he gives another argument. Um, in verse 5, he says, Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are, and are innocent? They, yet they are innocent. In other words, the priests have to do work in the temple on the Sabbath. Um, but then he says in verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So in other words, follow with me. The logic is not, hey, Pharisees, chill out. Other people broke the law. The logic here is King David was a particular kind of great person in my kingdom. And the temple is a particularly important place for God's people. And what Jesus is saying about both is there is something greater than both David and the temple. Something greater than both is here. And if something greater than both is here, then that, that person, that thing, has the authority to redefine what Sabbath is or to complete what Sabbath is. Uh, if serving in the temple could legitimize some forms of Sabbath work, how much more if something greater than the temple was here? Um, so Jesus is pointing to himself more significant than the temple. He's not rejecting the law. He's not rejecting temple. He's saying, I am more significant than both. Uh, and, and it's easy to read it. If you, like me, you probably read this a lot as like Jesus is sort of doing this like, well, I'm God, deal with it kind of a thing. Uh, and, and that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's arguing for. He's saying, I am the one who has the authority to tell you and show you what Sabbath is really all about. So, so, what, so what is, let's go back to it. What is that authority? Um, Jesus is saying, I am the one. I have the right because of who I am. Because all of creation points to me. Because of all of Israel's story points to me. I have the authority to redefine these things. To point to what they're really about. And this is, um, this is a, a, an important thing for us to grasp. Um, and I realize that, like, it can kind of get lost in the sauce of arguing about Sabbath and, and what's going on. Um, maybe one way to get at it is, is this. Uh, if some of you may have seen, uh, Ken, Ken Robinson has, uh, I think, what still is the most famous or most watched TED Talk of all time. Uh, it's a TED Talk called, uh, I think something like, Do, Do Schools Kill Creativity? Uh, the answer is yes, they do, by the way. But um, uh, No, but there's, there's hope, there's hope. But, um, but anyway, he... Uh, he, in, that, in that TED Talk, uh, which was really important to me as a teacher, he talks about um, the time he met uh, Jillian Lin. Uh, does anybody know Jillian Lin? Does that name sound familiar? Uh, oh, Luke in the back. Okay, Luke, I'm going to have to quiz you on that. Um, she's a choreographer. And you actually all know and this. So I, I'm, I'm taking this story from, from Ken from his, uh, from his TED Talk. Um, you, you actually all know her work. Uh, she's the choreographer for Cats, uh, you know, major... Major production, world, you know, millions of people entertained around the world, um, Jillian Lin. Um, and Ken Robinson had the opportunity to meet her and ask her how she became a dancer. 
Uh, and, and she told the, the story. They, as, a, as a young girl, she, she was hopeless at school. She could not sit still at all. Um, she was late on all her work. Um, and so this was in the 30s. Her, her, parents, um, her parents were in contact with the school, and the school said to her basically, uh, your daughter has, has a learning disorder, um, and she, she can't focus. She's really a problem in school. Uh, and so the mo- her mom, Jillian's mom, took her to a specialist, uh, and, and they talked for, for 20 minutes. You know, Jillian is sitting there, you know, uh, sitting on her hands, listening as her mom and specialist talk back and forth about all the problems that were happening in school. Um, and, uh, and as the specialist heard all these things and heard, heard the problems, he said, he told Jillian, he said, you know, this little girl, Jillian, she said, wait here, your mom and I are going to go out in the hallway and have a quick chat. Um, and, and as they were getting up to leave, um, the, the, special, the doctor, he just flipped the radio on, just put the music on, and walked out into the hallway. And, and as they got in the hallway, they looked through the door, the, uh, the window on the door, and he told her mom, just, just, let's just sit and watch her for a little bit. And the minute they were out of the room, uh, Jillian was up on her feet. Uh, and, and she began to, immediately began to dance and move to the music that, that the specialist had left on. Um, and, and the specialist turns to the mom and says, uh, your daughter's not sick. She's a dancer. Take her to a dance school. And, of course, uh, Jillian goes on and becomes one of the most world-renowned, uh, she, she, uh, world-renowned choreographers and dancers um, in the world. She goes to a dance school, and, and she tells the story. I immediately went in and suddenly was surrounded by people just like me, people who had to move in order to think. Uh, and... And she goes on to, to join the, the Royal Ballet of School. She, found, she founds her own dance company. Uh, she's a choreographer for Cats, for Fan of the Opera. Um, and, and, and this is the story of how she, um, she got into it. She became a dancer. And, and why do I tell you that story? Because the specialist does something there that, that Jesus is claiming in himself. The specialist has authority to define and redefine the life for, life for Jillian. for the good and glory of all of us, right? We all benefit from that. And in the same way, Jesus wields authority for all of creation, for all the cosmos, for you and me. He is the one looking at us and saying, no, no, this, you're not, this, is, this is sickness, and this is what you are. This is what's your good. This is what's good for you. So that, that's, that's his authority. That's the power that it can have, and that's the goodness of it. God bless you. So, um, so what does it mean? Uh, it's, his, it's his right to redefine authority. Um, why does it offend? Um, hey, yeah, this, this is one of those sentences that, um, goodness gracious. Um, I'm sorry I wrote this, but let me read it. Um, because Jesus' authority confronts you with the reality, this is why it offends, that you may not only be 100% wrong about what is good for you, but also to drive you to violence truth that you don't have the right to say so in the first place. Uh, Jesus' authority confronts us uh, with this reality. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Jesus, of course, has all these different responses to him. Uh, they plot to kill him. They call him in this passage a demon who casts out demons. They take offense at him because of who he is and where he came, where he came from. Uh, and then here's, here's sort of the, the, the heart of it. Look at verse 13 and 14. Uh, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. 
But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. <laughs> it's just a stunning uh, two verses. Uh, what could possibly explain this kind of response to Jesus' healing? Well, what, the, what you have to understand about what the Pharisees do, do and, and why they're so kind of uptight about the law is that they do something called, they, they build a fence around Torah. They, 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 they would build extra rules and regulations in order to keep God's people from actually ever transgressing the law itself. So you, you know about this. This is why um, no gum is allowed in the classroom. There's nothing wrong with gum, but it's a fence around putting gum underneath the, the, the seat, right, or the chair. Um, there's a reason why like, the gym I go to, no guns are allowed on the premises. Well, that's a little trickier one. But the idea is, hey, there's a fence around. We don't want violence of any kind, so we're, not, we're just not going to allow guns at all, right, in this space. Um, that the, the Pharisees, likewise, would build these extra regulations around Torah, around God's law, to, to keep you from even coming close to, to breaking the law. Um, and so what Jesus exposes, though, in them is that in their efforts to follow God's will, um, their view of God's will actually became distorted. Um, it, to the extent that the life of an animal became higher of higher value than, than the healing in the life of a person. That's how distorted it became. Uh, the healing of a man's hand is actually outside the bounds of Sabbath. And this is, this is actually the autopilot move of the human heart. Uh, have you ever gotten into the car and just driven somewhere that you go every day and you arrive at that place and you realize that you actually did not comprehend that you just drove through traffic? Has this ever happened to you? Um, you sort of have that stunning um, moment where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not dead. I can't believe that. that I should have, I was not conscious of any traffic lights or anything. Um, this, is, that's the, this is the autopilot move of the human heart. Uh, you, we, we, will, we will day by day, over time, we will replace the lordship, the authority of God with our own. And, and to the extent that what we think is good is actually now flipped from what God called good. That we, we drift so much that we distort what God calls good with our own definition. Um, and, and often, we, we often begin very close, right? The Pharisees, they began close to the law of God. Um, but what do we know? I, I've heard this illustration a couple times. It's really helpful for me. You know, if a group of ships um, start out together um, sailing, uh, with slight degrees of difference in their, uh, in their trajectory, they will be together for a very long time. But 300 miles down the line, you won't even be able to see the ship next to you, right? I um, mean, this is what happens. This is the drift of our hearts away from what God calls good, when we replace our own authority with his. Uh, we build our life on a different authority, a different foundation. And so what Jesus is doing, why, they're so, why the Pharisees moved to plot to kill Jesus um, is because he's challenging and exposing their distorted view of what's good. Um, and that moves them to violence. Now, if that, I, I really want you to get how, how upsetting, like some of you are like, yeah, I get that, but I still don't want to kill Jesus. <laughs> right? So, so uh, can you just go with a risky metaphor with me for a minute? And we'll see if this, tr so try this on, and if it doesn't, you know, never think about it again, all right? Um, because, because you have to get how earth-shattering this is to replace Jesus' authority with your own. Um, you see, some of you may have seen the movie Birds, Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, very simply, 
it's, it's a movie in which um, birds, actual birds, uh, become our, uh, predators of humans. They, they take over and attack a town. That's, uh, I mean, that's very, you know, that's very simple, but that's basically what happens. But, but I was thinking about this movie, the horror of the movie, why it's actually scary to watch, even though it's really dated and it's, it's actually still scary to watch, is because, um, because it, it taps into something really important about the way we think about life. It flips the food chain. So, so you, if you go outside right now and suddenly birds are your predator, uh, that kind of changes the calculus about your life, doesn't it? I mean, I mean think about that. There are birds waiting for you outside. They are now your predator. And that's why it's so horrifying is the idea that something that I take for granted, something that, I, that, that is sort of a safety point for me, is suddenly flipped to now not only being different, but actually being a threat to me. And that's the horror of the birds, right? Um, and so, so why this is risky is I'm actually aligning Jesus with the birds, um, which I don't want to do for too long. But I do want you to see that's why the Pharisees are moved to kill him because he is disrupting the food chain in their life. He is telling them, no, 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 no. What you think is good, what you're actually making good is actually destroying you. It's actually destroying the people you're trying to lead. And it's totally flipping around their world to where they have to rethink everything that they know about what's good and true and beautiful, about what's safe and what's not safe. And that's the, kind of, that's the kind of horror response that they have to Jesus. What happens when your default, mood, sorry, your default view of the, of the order of life is under threat? Um, maybe some better questions for you this morning um, are how confident are you in your own definition of what's good? It's going to determine a lot about the way you live your life. Um, how sure of you are you that the pattern of your life reflects valuing people over material possessions? But I mean, it's easy to judge the Pharisees. Oh, they didn't heal the man on the Sabbath. They're so, you know, how could they not see? How, are, you, are you so confident that your life is ordered, that you value human life and the dignity of people above your own possessions and your own comfort? Uh, here's another question that may upset your your default view of the world. Where do you get your definition of rest? Have you determined, or have you just allowed the the world to determine by default how you view, what what rest is really good for you? The the world has a lot of ideas about it that are really easy to accept and just take on a default view. Uh, Does your life reflect a heart, mind, soul, and strength devoted to God's will? And if we really take the authority of Jesus in, there's, there's going to be some, some food chain flipping moments that need to happen in our hearts. And, and brothers and sisters, it's an encouragement. This is why it offends, but, but, it's, but that is actually faith. The, the, the kind of faith Jesus calls us to is one that actually confronts us to transform our patterns of thinking. So these are not gotcha questions. These are like follow Jesus questions. Because if you're following him, these are the kinds of things that will be unearthed in you. Uh, one by one, not just all at once, but one by one, little by little, day by day. So Jesus' authority, um, 
the one who's been given authority on heaven and earth. It's a food chain interrupting thought. Um, the difference between life under the authority of Jesus and life under your own is the difference between knowing what will bring harm and destruction in your life and what brings life and order and peace. And so the authority of Jesus offends because it just dethrones all others. Uh, he doesn't share that seat with anyone. He alone has the wisdom to determine good and evil. He alone has the right to do so. And that, that hopefully, so there's a lot of the text we're not going to get into, but Verse 30, right, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not scatter with me scatters. I'm sorry, whoever does not gather with me scatters. Right, this is why he's saying this. I alone am Lord. I alone have authority. It's a good authority, but you can't share it with another. So, so the invitation of the, uh, it, the, the offense to us, that our response to that is, is to turn back to Jesus, um, to name our offense at him and to not try and hide it. Um, and and so, so, so finally, let's, let's, let's finish here. So what does it mean? Uh, why does it offend? And then lastly, how does it offer us hope? Um, it's, it's really good news that humanity doesn't have the final word about anything. Jesus is the final word. He exercises his authority by laying down his life for us. And in so doing, he provides us with a real rest and a family that runs deeper than blood. Um, it's important that you see the hope out of this and notice that um, even in the midst of all the offense and all the plots to kill, do you notice that wherever Jesus brings his authority, something else also happens? New life. Wherever Jesus exercises his authority, life sort of pours out. Um, life pours out. The authority of Jesus, um, and you see that at the end uh, of the passage, the, the very end of what Timothy read, um, where Jesus redefines who his family is. Which, by the way, is, is hey, take it out of context. You can see how sort of messed up we could use that passage. Um, but what is Jesus saying? He's saying, no, no, I am the one who can declare who is my family. I have the authority to declare. When I declare it over you, that is the truth. I have the authority to do that. He's not slamming families. It's a 100% it's wrong way to read the passage, right? He's saying, I alone, he's talking about you and me. He's saying, I can say to you, because I have the authority to do it, you are my brothers and sisters. You are now a part of my family. That's the kind of authority that he has. That's, that's the hope. That's the comfort that he gives. Um, Jesus can rename Sabbath um, for us. He renames good and evil for us. Uh, and he, he even renames Sabbath, uh, family for us. And, and how does he accomplish that for us? Uh, Jesus, Jesus in John 10 says this, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it up from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus uses his authority uh, not, not to lord over us, not to, uh, not to exert violent power in our lives, not to fill his treasure chest with his own, his own things, his own want, his own, his own desires. Uh, Jesus uses his authority to lay down his life for us. And on the cross, Jesus gives his life. And he's crucified and he's, he's dead 
He's buried and he rises again and, and wins victory over sin and death for us. And then ascending to the Father, he's, the Father and the Son send the Spirit for us. And, and the, whoever has the Spirit of God are the children of God. If you are led by the Spirit, the Spirit given to you, you are a child of God. Because the Spirit given does not make you a slave so that you live in fear again. But the Spirit given brings about your adoption to sonship. And by that Spirit, brothers and sisters, you can cry out to Abba Father, the one who has supreme authority. You can cry out to him, Abba Father. And that same Spirit this morning declares with your spirit that you are his child. That's what the scriptures tell us. And that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's declaring we are his children. That's what his authority brings. That's the hope it brings. You are his children. And so the, the last thing, um, that, that's, that's the invitation this morning. If, you hear, if you're convicted this morning of your own sin, if you're convicted of the ways that you have replaced Jesus with the seat of authority in your own heart with yourself, um, that's the invitation. He says, come to me. You are my child. Cry out to me, Abba, Father. But, but there's one last um, invitation too. So, so that's, that's if you're, you're convicted this morning, and I recognize you may be both. You, you also may be um, somebody who's just here and all you can see is your own suffering. And you're, you're clouded with suffering um, and despair. And, and here's the other thing that his authority gives us. It gives us a real rest, even in the midst of our suffering. A true rest, a rest that goes deeper than our pain. Um, so for those of you who are suffering um, this morning, it's a, it's a strange hope to look at Jesus' authority because the point where his authority and our suffering, suffering meet is often uh, a point of grave distress. Because we say, Jesus, if you have authority, take away my suffering, right? But what, what we see in this passage and what we know about Jesus laying down his life for us is that, that he has another idea. That, that Jesus meets us in our suffering. And there he is with us ordering our steps. And so in other words, there is life, there is real rest, even in the midst of our suffering. And so when we suffer and the temptation comes to do all sorts of destructive things, to either, to either numb the pain or want to flee from it, um, however reckless or no matter what the cost, the authority of Jesus means that no pain, no amount of suffering can impinge upon the ways of life he has set out for you and the life he gives. Uh, Jesus is with you there in the suffering because he has the authority to be there with you. No one else can, can, can drive him away. Nothing can separate you from his love. And so the comfort for those of you in pain and suffering and grief this morning is in the authority of Christ is that your suffering, your pain, cannot drive him away, cannot separate you from his love for you. So, so don't, don't flee from Jesus who is there with you in that pain. And I say that knowing. We, we say that no, not flippantly, not, not you should be doing better, Christian, but just know that Jesus is there next to you. 
um, knowing the deep pain and sorrows that this congregation carries, and knowing that, that many of you, my impression as I talk to many of you, and, and as I think about what many of you are going through, is that there is just a sense of like everybody's sort of beaten down by the last five years. So there's no one here who sort of doesn't, isn't carrying COVID around on your back a little bit. There's no one here who's not carrying around broken relationships on your back a little bit. There's no one here who's, who's not carrying some burden. And so you need to hear that comfort of the authority of Christ that nothing can separate you from him, even in the midst of that suffering and grief you're going through. Um, and so, so that, that's, and the worship team can come forward. That's, that's the picture for us as a people, that, that we would be a people who, who live under the authority of Christ, um, that we suffer well together, that we carry one another's burdens together well, that we have confidence to know that that authority sustains us. Uh, so uh, would, you, would you just pray this, this prayer with me um, by way of closing this, this sermon? Uh, Lord, we say, Lord, take, Lord, and receive all our liberty, all our memory, all our understanding. Take our entire will. Take our authority, Lord, we say. All, of, all that we have and all that we call our own, Lord, you have given it all to us. And to you, Lord, we say we want to return it. We submit it, Lord, to your authority. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. Give us only your love and your grace. That is enough for us. Just, just take a moment and if, if the Spirit is moving you to say, that is enough for me. Help my unbelief, Lord. That is enough for me. Just take a moment with the Lord to say, only your love and your grace, that is enough for me.